Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bow before you again with thankful hearts that we have privileged to gather before you this morning to worship you in truth and spirit. We thank you, Father, for the great work of salvation that Christ has accomplished on our behalf so that we might have this privilege of worshiping the true and living God. We thank you that you have placed a desire in our heart to worship you. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ, knowing that our sins are put away, that the debt has been paid, that they have been removed as far as the east is from the west and remembered no more. What a great and wonderful salvation He has given to us, and we pray that we would meditate upon this truth this day as we continue to look at this passage of what Christ has accomplished there at Calvary. We pray that our hearts would be spurred on to faithfulness, that as we remember this work there at Golgotha, Father, that we would be moved to worship you more deeply. We thank you, Father, that you are gracious and merciful, God, and that you hear our prayers and answer them according to your will. We pray on behalf of our nation, Father, especially as we have an election coming up soon, that you would be merciful and gracious to us and give us men who would faithfully serve, men who fear the living God. We pray, Father, that you would guide us and return us to the faith of our fathers. We pray that you would revive your church, that you would give us watchmen on the wall to proclaim the truth, and that people would make a commitment to live and serve you. We pray, Father, for those that we love dearly and know, and pray that you would be gracious and merciful and show your healing hand upon them. Restore their health. We pray especially for Steph Morgan as he continues to undergo surgery, and we pray that you would be merciful in his life and heal his body. We pray, Father, for our sister church there in Africa, Emmithsdale, as they have lost two members, one a deacon and one is the oldest member of the church. How we pray that you would sustain that church during this time of grief and that you would raise up others to take their place. We pray for Pastor Tiago as he preaches this morning there at Faith Church in Pennsylvania. We pray that you would use him to share with them in the afternoon time about his future work there in Portugal and that you would provide him the finances that he needs to return with his family to Portugal and begin that work there. We pray for our brother Jeff Thomas as he tries to get his religious visa to come and be at our Founders Conference in January, work out all the details, and we pray that he would not have to stay in isolation when he comes to the United States, but all of this, as far as the virus is concerned, would be calmed down to where we would be able to return to our normal activities. We also pray, Father, for the unrest there in Africa. We pray that you would work out the situations there, that you would stop the killing, 
that you would raise up men to stand firm upon the truth, and Father, that you would send the aid that they need to protect Christians. We pray for our brother Rusty there in Senegal and that you would continue to use him and Guy and Cindy to do a work, Father, to bring glory and honor to your name. We also pray, Father, for Rich and Margie as they return home safely, and we pray that as they return next week that you would give them safety as they move into their new home. We thank you for your grace and mercy in all of these situations, and we pray that we would be submissive to whatever your will might be in them and that you would bring glory and honor to your name. And as the gospel, Father, is proclaimed throughout the world this day, we pray that many would come into your kingdom and that you would also sanctify your saints by your word. And all of this we pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. You would take your Bibles and turn with me again to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 15, and we'll pick up where we left off last week, reading with verse 21 and following. Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 21. And they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear the cross, and they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mixed with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him, and the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on the right and the other on the left. So the scripture was fulfilled which said, and he was numbered with transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise the chief priests also, together with the scribes, mocked, and said among themselves, He saved others. Himself He cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, and we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with Him reviled Him. Jesus Christ always did what His heavenly Father will was. He never wavered one bit, but pleased His heavenly Father at every occasion. This included everything that happened from the Garden of Gethsemane all the way up to Golgotha. He willingly drank the cup that was presented to Him there in Gethsemane and began to experience all of the horrors which included the trial the beating, the mockery, no food, drink, or sleep, and then the cross. As we now come to Golgotha, we see that he's even treated worse than he has been treated before. What we've already seen was heinous. Our eyes can even turn away as we think upon what they did to our Lord but yet we see that it definitely gets worse. The Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Holy One, 
is nailed to the cross and placed between two criminals that he looked as though he was the chief of sinners. We see that Matthew gives us a little bit more information than what Mark gave us as we read it there in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 35. It says, And then they crucified him and divided his garments and cast lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided the garments of among them, and for my clothes they cast lot. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. He is Jesus, the King of the Jews. We see that Jesus endured all that he endured there at the cross to fulfill all of the prophecies that mentioned about the Lamb of God. He did this to obtain salvation for His people. He was led out of the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha. Now think about that. Is that important? It is. Because we see that there's a parallel that is mentioned here pertaining to how He fulfilled the Old Testament Day of Atonement. We have the teaching of what theologians call expiation and propitiation. Expiation, the taking away of sin, and propitiation, the paying of our debt to satisfy the wrath of God. So what occurred to Jesus, what occurred on this occasion was Jesus fulfilling the Day of Atonement. On that Day of Atonement, the great high priest would take the two goats and one would be sacrificed there on the altar for the sins of the people. The other goat, he would take his hands and he would lay them on that goat called the escape goat. And then that escape goat would be led out to the east of the city so that he would take away the sins of the people. Of course, this was symbolic. Symbolic of the sins of Israel being taken away from them. Symbolic of their sins being laid upon that goat, transferred from the nation of Israel to that goat. And then as he was carried outside the camp to the east, that's one reason why we say that the sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. And likewise, we see that our Lord and Savior was led out of the city to the east to Golgotha. Now, these two goats, we could say in one sense, are two sides of the same uh, coin. You cannot separate expiation from propitiation because they both are used to satisfy God so that we might have the privilege of coming to God. It's all about imputation. Luther calls it the glorious exchange. Our sins... For His righteousness. And truly that is a glorious exchange. Nothing was done to Jesus Christ that His Father did not decree for our salvation. Peter teaches us this in Acts chapter 2 verse 23 when he said, Him being delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So everything that is happening to Christ there at Golgotha was predestined by our Heavenly Father. 
He determined it so that we might have salvation. Paul tells us that it is a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Greek. But to all who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So therefore, we know that from all eternity, God had a plan, an eternal plan to save His people from their sin. And that plan has never changed. And He carried it out exactly as He intended it carrying out in using His Son to bring about our salvation, which we call, of course, redemptive history which began there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when man sinned and God came to save him. So God's redemptive plan includes all that we have studied here in the Gospel of Mark. Now remember when we started the Gospel of Mark, I shared with you that the majority of Mark spends its time on Jesus' death beginning there in the Garden of Gethsemane. But not only Mark, all of the Gospels do that. All of the Gospels spend the majority of their time on the last two weeks of Jesus' life. Now what does that tell us? What it tells us is that is the climax of Jesus' life. Now of course all that Jesus did is important, but the most important thing is what He did during this time there in Jerusalem going from Gethsemane to the cross, to the grave, and then His resurrection. So we are looking at the climax of redemptive history that includes Jesus being lifted up to draw all men to Himself. Now as we see what transpires here at Golgotha, or we say Calvary, Golgotha of course is uh, the Greek, Calvary is the Latin word. Let us observe how Jesus maintains control over all of His faculties so that He could completely fulfill all that the Messiah was prophesied to do to save His people from their sins. Now first of all, Mark tells us that they tried to give Jesus a drink. And it tells us there in the Scripture, mixed wine with myrrh. Now this drink, of course, was given to those who were to be crucified so that they might not experience the full extent of the pain of the nails going into their hands and into their feet. It was a pain reliever to help deaden those feelings that they would experience. The pain was excruciating. And we experience pain but nothing like that. I mean, if you've ever stepped on the knee, you know uh, a nail, you know what the pain feels like going from your foot up your leg. And it was excruciating to Jesus. Matter of fact, that word actually comes from crucifixion. And we see here that these Roman soldiers did show a little bit of humanity by offering this drink to those who would be crucified. But we see that Jesus refuses to take the drink. For He was there to taste death in all of its pain, in its full strength. He refused to have anything that would lessen the pain in any way or His mind being disoriented. 
as John Phillips says, he was about his father's business. He still had things to do while prescuring redemption for lost man. He wanted a clear mind and possessed possession of his faculties. Sinclair Ferguson said, The king must remain in control of all his faculties. So Jesus refused the wine mixed with myrrh and given as a drug to relieve the terrible pain of crucifixion. Even now, messianic prophecies continue to be fulfilled as the crowd watches. So we see that Jesus refused this drink for he wanted to be fully aware of all that was happening so that he might complete the atoning work. As we know in Isaiah 53, it calls the Messiah the suffering servant. And we see that he continues to suffer Suffer in our place as he goes to this crucifixion. Now, why did he refuse this drink? Because he is the only mediator. There is only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, and he refused it so that he might be fully aware of what his work was as mediator. He knew it was his task to experience the pain of thirst, the nails in his hands and his feet, receiving the insults and the mocking, but most importantly, experiencing our hell there on the cross to pay for our sins. Jesus willingly bears the condemnation for sinners in its fullness without any anesthesia. For He experienced the full wrath of God on our behalf. That wrath that you and I should have experienced. He suffered the anathema of a just and God-hating, sin-hating God for hours. If He had been drugged in any way, when facing God and when facing those standing and hanging there at Golgotha or in loving all those that the Father had given Him to the end, He would have sinned. So therefore, He could not take this drink. How could He have spoken to the dying thief or to His mother and to Peter if He had taken this drug? How could He have been interceded on behalf of sinners as He was being crucified and those sinners being crucified for Him? How could He have spoken those last seven words if He had taken this drug? It would have cost us our salvation if He had drank this drink. Therefore, He totally rejected it. We must not allow this glorious truth to become some cold theological dogma. For God's Word is alive. It is living truth. Jesus Christ Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So therefore, we must not be content in simply understanding this truth by our mind, but we must understand what this truth does as far as our own life, how it affects our life. 
If we are simply looking upon this truth and say, well, what something Christ has done for us, isn't this exciting? If it does not move us to worship Him and praise Him, then something is wrong with us. We find ourselves in a backslidden condition and we need to be revived as we think upon this truth. As we think about all that Christ did there at Calvary, it should humble us and cause us to worship Him faithfully and persevere in the faith. Paul makes reference to this there in 2 Timothy chapter 2 when he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engages in warfare, entangles himself in the affairs of this life, that he may himself be enlisted with, as a good soldier. And also if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he completes, of course, according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first a partaker of the crop. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. So we are to consider all that is taught in Scripture pertaining to Christ and what Christ has accomplished for us. We must persevere the hardships that come into our life. We must be strong in the grace of Jesus Christ as we meditate upon these truths, what Christ did to accomplish our salvation. Second, we see that the soldiers divided His garments among themselves which fulfills Psalms 22, 18, which we read just a few moments ago. Mark doesn't mention all that Matthew mentions pertaining to this. We see that Matthew actually quotes the Psalms 22, 18 in his gospel. Why doesn't Mark? Some believe that, well, there's a contradiction here. Because Matthew says one thing, Mark says another, and he leaves it out. But we have to understand that there was a very purpose why Mark did not include it, and Matthew includes it. We have to remember that Mark's audience was not Jews. Mark's audience was Gentiles. Gentiles knew very little about the Old Testament. They could care less about Old Testament prophecy. But yet the Jews, on the other hand, were, it was very important to them. So therefore, Matthew quotes an Old Testament passage there in Psalms 22, verse 18, to show that Jesus Christ fulfilled that particular text and how it is fulfilled in the dividing of His garments. Now we know, of course, this is not only one passage, but there's many passages throughout Mark and the other Gospels that are fulfilled, and the disciples speak of those. Now we have to understand that none of the gospel writers spent much time on these awful details of the piercing nails in Jesus' hands and His feet or the blows of the hammer driving those nails into His hands and feet or the stabbing pain or the violent jerking when the cross was lifted up and dropped into that hole as His body jerked on those nails there in the cross. Those are not spoken of by the disciples, nor is the filth 
and the flies and the smell and the cries and the mocking. All of these are left out as the disciples write their account of the Gospels. And our eyes are fixed upon this scene and it's difficult for us to even think about it. It's difficult to recall what Luke said in chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. He will be great and He will be called the Son of the Highest and the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David and will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. There at the very beginning of his life, we learn that it would be a unique life. Not only how he was born, but how he would live his life and he would fulfill all that his father had given him to do. And now we see that his life is not only unique, but also his death is unique. No person has ever experienced all that Jesus experienced from Gethsemane to Golgotha before nailing Jesus Christ to the cross. First, they stripped Him. Stripped Him of His garments. His last possessions that He had, He had nothing left Traditional Jewish apparels included an inner garment, an outer garment, a tunic, a belt, sandals, and a headpiece. John makes reference to this in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. He says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took His garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from top in one piece. They said, therefore among themselves, let not tear it, but cast lots for it, who it shall be, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, saying, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So we see another passage of Scripture is fulfilled by them dividing his garments and casting lot for his tunic. Now this was another aspect of humiliation for Christ as He hung there on the cross and was crucified. Most believe that as a person was crucified, He was totally stripped of all of His clothing to where He was naked. R.C. Sproul says, In Jesus' case, however, the religious leaders are elated to see Him disgraced upon the cross. He is crucified outside Jerusalem in deference to Jewish sensibilities on a major thoroughway. So as the people would go by, they would be warned not to commit this particular crime which merit crucifixion. They were usually hung on the cross naked, but Jesus might have been allowed a loincloth due to the shame His people associated with nakedness. Either way, his clothing now belonged to the soldiers regarding him, a custom observed with every crucified victim. Matthew Henry points out that by sin we were made naked to our shame, and thus he purchased us a white robe to cover our nakedness. We, he was stripped for us, Enemies may strip us of our clothing, 
but they cannot strip, strip us of our best comforts, cannot take away our garment of praise that He has given us. Again, we see God in His providence ordering every single move Every move that these four soldiers make was appointed by God to carry out the crucifixion exactly as God had ordained. After He was put there on the cross, they would simply wait till He expired. So as they waited, they took His garments and they divided them up into four equal parts. But the tunic, the cloak, It was the prize, so they cast Lot for it. So while Jesus was dying in agony upon the cross, they were merrily dividing up His things, but their actions were simply the fulfillment of Scripture, proving that He was the Messiah. Now many, following these soldiers' steps, so concerned about worldly possessions that they completely miss what is going on right before their eyes. The greatest event in history was taking place and they had no idea whatsoever that was happening. It's so easy. To allow the things of this world, as Paul tells us, to be squeezed into its mold. As Paul makes reference to this in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. To be conformed to this world literally means to be with it. That's one of the strongest temptations that every Christian has. In other words, no one wants to be out of it. We all want to be with it. We all want to fit in. Of course, that's called peer pressure. And not only do kids and teenagers experience this, but all people experience this. We all want to participate in all the structures and style of the world. But the Bible says we are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Now, we must not misunderstand. That doesn't mean that we are to be nonconformists. That isn't what Paul is addressing here. We are to be transformed, changing, going beyond the standard of this world to a more excellent life, realizing who we are in Christ and what Christ has done for us and what Christ has for us. That this world is passing away, that we are simply pilgrims passing through this world and we have something so much better than this world waiting for us there in glory, in the new heaven and in the new earth. 
See, many try to flee from this world. They hide in their basement. But the Holy Spirit won't tolerate that. He has sent us into the world to be light in darkness. Listen to what Luther says. There's a normal pattern of Christian behavior. The person who's converted out of the world spends his first day as a Christian in the tendency to completely withdraw from the world. So you see what he's saying? When we first become Christians, we we seek to completely withdraw from the world. Paul went to Arabia, for example. Or we might have a desire to be so far removed from the stain and the pollution of this world that we become astonic in our thinking, withdrawing, stepping out of the world altogether. But he says a Christian doesn't reach maturity until he re-enters the world and embraces the world again, not in its worldliness and its ungodly patterns, but as a theater and an arena of God's redemption. So we're sent into the world to make a difference. We are to be light in this dark world. That is our calling. Not to be like the world, but to shine forth in the world. Thirdly, the crucifixion we are told there began at the third hour. Children, do you know what the third hour is? The third hour would be 9 o'clock in the morning our time. That's Jewish time. Their day started at 6 o'clock in the morning. That was their clock at 6 o'clock in the morning. So therefore we see that Jesus was crucified beginning at 9 o'clock in the morning. Now for a crucifixion, it was normally longer than the six hours that Christ was on the cross. It could actually go for days for the person hanging on the cross. But we have to remember all that Christ had gone through and what Christ is about to experience. All the torture and the pain and the agony, the loss of blood. But none of these ultimately caused His death. We must remember it includes the suffering of the wrath of God upon Him there on the cross. And we have to remember that no one took away Christ's life. Christ gave His life. He offered it freely as the sacrificial Lamb of God. He gave His life, so therefore no one took it from Him. As verse 33 tells us, that at the sixth hour, which would be noon, darkness came on all the land for three hours. Now next week we will continue and look at that particular aspect of what happened. But it's important for us to see that this was a signal of divine judgment. Divine judgment, not on the temple, not on Caiaphas, not on the Pilate, not on the high priest, not on the soldiers, but divine judgment upon the Holy One. The darkness was a sign that God had removed His favor from His Son. 
and was pouring out His wrath upon Jesus in that darkness. Jesus was without God like sinners in hell. He was taking our hell upon Him. For three hours, the Son of God experienced the greatest anguish ever to experience. There's no way that any of us can even begin to imagine what He experienced there on the cross as it led Him to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? During those three dark hours on the cross, our Savior suffered in body and in soul the utter, utter, eternal anguish and punishment of hell for all of our sins. Why? Why did He do that? Well, the answer is simple. But it's hard for proud sinners to believe It was so that He, so that we wouldn't have to suffer in hell. So that God might never forsake us. I mean, what an incredible, undeserving sacrifice He made for us. Fourthly, we learned that there was an inscription hung over Jesus' head. The King of the Jews. We see Matthew says, This is Jesus, Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So above the head of the crucified victim, a wooden board would be fastened to their cross to define the crime of the person. We see in John 1920, that it was written in three different languages, Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. And John also tells us that the Jewish leaders wanted Pilate to change what he had written. But we see that he refused to do so and said, What is written, I have written. Now Pilate did this most likely to get back at the Jewish leaders and how the Jewish leaders had caused him to follow through on putting Jesus to death. So therefore they, more or less, in one sense, were at odds with one another and playing games with one another, seeing who could get the best of the other. But again, we see that God overrules. God overrules the Jews and He uses Pilate to place this plaque over the head of Jesus. I mean, there was no crime even alleged against Jesus Christ that was true. I mean, He was totally innocent. We looked at that a number of weeks ago. Here was a very glorious truth asserted concerning Christ. That He is the King of the Jews. That King whom the Jews expected and they should have submitted to. Now this accusation proclaimed this. That Jesus was the true Messiah. He was the true Savior of the world. And Pilate, instead of accusing Jesus of a crime, proclaimed Him a King. And that was done three times in three different languages over His head. Thus God makes men to serve His purpose. Quite beyond their own thinking. 
Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. They hung a sign identifying Jesus as King of the Jews above His head. As He was placed on the cross, the Romans typically posted the crime for which a person had been crucified. So Jesus was essentially crucified by the Romans for cessation, for claiming to be a king when Caesar was the true emperor, they thought. Without doing so knowingly, however, the Romans were proclaiming truth about Christ. He was and remains the king of Israel, God's anointed, and as such is ultimately Lord of Jews and Gentiles alike. Listen to what Calvin says. God determined that His own Son should be stripped of His raiment, that we, clothed with His righteousness, and with abundance of all good things, may appear with boldness in company with the angels, whereas formerly our lawful and disgraceful respect is tattered garments, kept us back from approaching the throne. Christ Himself permitted His garments to be torn to pieces like prey, that we might, that He might enrich us with the riches of His victory. So our Savior suffered a loss of all that He had there at Golgotha so that we would be clothed with His royal righteousness and that we would receive His eternal righteous obedience of perfection. And therefore, all who are in Christ are not only righteous in God's sight, but have been granted the righteousness to rule along with Christ over this world. Again, there in 2 Timothy, Paul continues there in that passage. And he says, Remember the Lord Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from dead according to the gospel for which I suffer trouble as evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation which is Christ Jesus with, with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. For if he died with him, if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. What a glorious truth that is, that he is king of kings and that we are able to reign with him because he is king of kings. And though we may suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ, one day we will reign with Him. May that truth encourages us, encourage us to faithfully persevere in the faith. In closing, let me ask you the question. Are you in Christ? Do you have this royal robe of righteousness? Is His perfection given to you? Do you have His perfect obedience because you have repented of your sins and trusted in Him and Him alone? Why? Why would anyone continue to wear their wicked, filthy robes that will send them to an eternal hell 
when the robe of righteousness is offered. Why would you leave this place this morning without repenting of your sins and looking to Christ and Christ alone who is your only hope, who willingly went to Golgotha and gave His very life and suffered hell so that you might have life, so that you might have glory, so that you might have heaven. Why would you reject such a glorious offer that comes from Christ Himself? I must be lifted up to draw all men to me. May God be pleased to draw you to Himself. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for such a glorious gospel. A gospel that changes men and women and children. A gospel that causes us to be light in this dark world. A gospel that has given us the righteousness of Christ. A gospel that has freed us from our chains, our bondage, our sin. A gospel that has given us eternal life. How we pray, Father, that your Spirit would work in lives today and open up eyes. Open their eyes to see their sinfulness and their need of this great salvation. Do not allow them, Father, to leave this place this day without crying out unto Christ in true repentance and faith so that they might experience this great salvation. And I pray, Father, for Christians that we would heed this exhortation by Paul that we would not be conformed to this world, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind and that we would go forth from this place to proclaim the gospel to those who are in need of Christ as Lord and Savior. This we pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.